All right, everyone, welcome to the fourth episode of the New Illumination podcast. This is a really cool, special episode in that it's the first one of this podcast in which I have a guest. The guest is the aforementioned uh, Tristan Einstein, my not only my blood relative, my cousin, but as I said, a very intelligent person. Uh, he points out in this episode that my contention that he's very intelligent uh, will have to be supported by data. <laughs> he's a very scientific-minded person, but I think that we got a lot of the data that we need to support my my hypothesis that he's a very intelligent person. Uh, this is really fun. He takes some issue with uh, some of my claims from the prior podcasts, and he is also, um, as it happens, a a chemical engineer by training and occupation. He has a lot more of the um, kind of firsthand knowledge of physics, which I lack. I, I understand some of the concepts which uh, physics implies, but as far as the actual mathematical grounding for a lot of those things, I am unfortunately pretty lacking. That's something that I'm trying to work on right now, actually, is getting more of a solid grasp on the higher mathematics so that I can understand these things, as it were, uh, from the ground up. But he comes with a lot of that understanding. And there's a point in here where I'm not sure what happened, but um, the audio on his end went kind of quiet for a couple of minutes. And I, you know, I was reviewing the the recording um, it's about, I don't know, 25 minutes in or something. And I was going to cut it all out, but he says some stuff that's pretty important there, I think, to the conversation. So I cut some of it out, but some of it is going to stay in. Um, so just be aware of that. It's best listened to on headphones. And in that moment, uh, or in that space of time in the podcast, uh, my voice and his voice really come across at different levels. So Sorry for any hearing loss that you guys incur, but I thought that the stuff that he said was substantive and important enough that I left it in. And that's another thing that I'm doing this podcast. I'm, I'm doing a lot or trying to do a lot more, um, making sure that the quality of the subject matter and of the discussions is very high so that, um, any of any any lack in quality as far as the audio so far um, will hopefully be made up for in the quality of the content. Uh, I want to have both of them at a very high quality, but right now, um, hopefully y'all will enjoy this conversation. This is only a small bit of the conversation that we are going to have. Um, I had a limited amount of time. And we only addressed, really, the question of ethics. He has a lot of other ideas um, about some of the other things that, I've, uh, that I have addressed. And he's a very deep thinker on all these subjects. He, he sent me three or, no, four pages of notes. I really appreciated that. Um, without further ado, here is episode four of the New Illumination podcast. <laughs> All right, I can hear you. You can hear me? How's the I can. Uh, I think it sounds good. I think it's good. We're just, we'll figure this out because <laughs> this is my first time doing this as well. 
Alrighty. Well, let's, I don't know, let's dive in, I suppose. Let's, uh, so we're going to be, you've listened to all of them, I think. I have. I just listened to the latest two today. Yeah. Oh, wow. I feel honored. Um, sorry, go on. No, you can make it, you can go with your official intro, however you want, um, whenever you want. Um, yeah, usually I just, I'll just record the conversation and then, and then I'll record a separate intro that kind of introduces what it's all going to be about and that kind of thing. So that's, uh, okay. Oh, so we can just kind of go. That's, that's sort of how I like to do it. Oh, great. All righty. So I'm looking at your notes from the first one, because I think that's more addressing like what the central theme is going to be. And then we can get on to whatever else we want to do as well. Like the central theme of the podcast in general. Perfect. Okay. Um, All righty. Well, I think that it might be fun to uh, let's, let's address some of the things I said, especially around the, the foundation of ethics. And I'd like to hear, because I can see all your notes here and they're impressive, but I'd like to hear a couple of the things that you thought were good points and then maybe something that you, or a few things, whatever, that you disagree with. Sure. That sounds wonderful to me. Um, I guess with regards to that, uh, and specifically the first podcast, um, Mm -hmm. I love the major point about just the foundation of ethics and having to form it as a foundation Mm -hmm. and why it is as essential as it is. Um, it's unrecognized a lot of the times. And I have to agree with that in society that there is a study of ethics. There's a logic to it and the practicality of it that if not truly founded, it can dive under and we get a lot of the systematic problems we have in society today that we that you honestly have directed and pointed out mm-hmm. um, the other thing i liked about it i liked how you founded on belief um mm. i thought that was a very good connection to it and that truth is to hold a belief and within it and how fundamental that is to just any conversation with an ethics is that you need to it comes with a belief in whatever you hold to be the ethics, to be the rule in whatever basis you're forming. If you mm-hmm. don't buy it, then it's all flattery. Right. Right. It, it doesn't, if, if you don't, and one of my big problems with today, I think is that people say stuff, uh, but they don't actually really foundationally believe it because they haven't, they haven't looked to the base of what they're believing and said, yeah, I choose to believe in this one principle. Cause I, my contention is that the principles that we hold to that we base our ethics on, you can't, you can't really prove them. You can't prove them. Scientifically speaking, you have to take them. You could say you have to take them on faith. For instance, it's, um, it's morally right to treat other people well. You can't prove that scientifically because you can't prove morality scientifically. So that's sort of my contention is that we've, we've gone so far into seeing uh, science and materialism as the basis for everything that it sort of ends up undermining our ethics because we then look at our ethics and we're like, wait, well, then what is our ethics founded on? Interesting. Okay. How about 
because that was as you probably as you as we've discussed that was one of the <laughs> main points of contention um I exactly like, uh and i guess to start with this i think i think the best thing to do would be to kind of along those lines for you to define you already kind of did what the issue is with the current dependence that we have had on both science and your meaning um of materialism the interconnection mm. between the two and where they have um fallen short where um, they've fallen short within society's applications i guess mm -hmm. and with what we're I think, using them for yeah so i think that um for a long time in in history problem you know most of history most of human history we've seen uh different ways of coming to the truth so we've seen we've seen um you know, we would have our elders tell us, we would have traditions that were passed down from, you know, who knows where, who knows how long. Um, we would sort of believe what we saw. So it was very easy back in the ancient times to just walk around the world and say, oh yeah, this is flat because it feels flat. Um, we eventually found out that there are ways of systematically looking at the physical world and coming to truths so you come to or you could say uh coming to a better idea of how things work physically mm -hmm. um so when we do that we can understand sort of the material world better so i think that when we came to that understanding um there was sort of a shift that went on you know there's a shift between the time when, for instance, uh, Galileo was confined to his house and imprisoned because he had said maybe the Earth wasn't the center of the universe. There was a, a, a shift that went on between then and between like Darwin and the origin of species or on the origin of species when he said these things that went counter to the narrative of religion and that was accepted rather than him being executed or excommunicated or something like that mm. so it's obvious that the somewhere between those two points the the wider cultural narrative or the power the the cultural narrative that held the power had changed it had shifted so shifted from um religion is the answer to all of the questions in the universe and it had shifted or it had begun the shift toward science is the answer to all of the questions in the universe. And so that happened during the industrial revolution, the scientific revolution. And I think that the problem was, and it had to happen like this, but the, I think what happened was um, we, instead of saying, okay, we can get, there are some answers that we can get from science. We said, okay, uh, nothing is real except the physical and we can get all of the answers about the physical from science therefore there's no use for spirituality religion um a belief in the soul faith all this kind of stuff so that's kind of my contention and that 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 philosophy or that belief has been followed through and it's not like we understand everything in science now and now we get that oh it doesn't have the answers it's just that I think that we've reached a certain point in our development of our thought as humans where 
we've seen that certain things just are not addressed by science. Science addresses certain things. It has a certain job to do. But there are certain things in the realm of human experience that aren't really addressed by science. That's all I'm saying. Interesting. Okay. Well, I mean, you know this about me, but I feel the need to kind of compel this and explain this. Mm-hmm. So I'm a huge, huge proponent of science. Um, yeah. Yeah, I've been for a very long time, kind of part of the nature of my identity formed even in my name. Um, <laughs> in your name? Yes. Oh, Einstein. Yeah, I was yeah, thinking Tristan. That's <laughs> <laughs> Not quite that one. Right. Uh, but yeah, just moving forward with that, it's I, I think faith in, its, in spirituality, um, because as you know, I'm also very spiritual and about mm-hmm. as religious as I believe you religious you can be. Um, mm-hmm. The interconnection between the two I think it's not exactly, I don't know, I, the, I don't view them as separate as mm. I suppose has been defined. For mm. me, it's a, it's a question of, we only know so much, correct? Yeah. And science is a tool. It is a way for us to systematically be able to judge where we're at, give reasons behind where we're at and what things are and what the truth is and give data to support that hypothesis and eventually you have a theory um and the theory holds until other data can prove it false or further support it and uh with that movement i mean like even you defined truth back in the olden days was very easy because you only could test so much Mm -hmm. and what you observed you held true until we had other data points to be able to prove it false. And then I guess in that, so in that reasoning is kind of where I think we've came up with this, the scientific method of being able mm-hmm. to make observations, get data points, support it, and then um, either support that or refute the current ages of the day. You bring up Galileo, how mm-hmm. he was excommunicated and pretty much imprisoned for the rest of his life because the teachings that he had substantiated went against the rulings of the church that no the world the earth is the center of the universe when actually it was disputed that the sun is at the actual center of the universe and later Copernicus helped to prove that and errors that were not as a Spanish inquisition um (laughs) (laughs) but um I guess the idea of that is that science is just continually trying to figure things out right mm-hmm. science is continually trying to find the answer is and it doesn't have all the answers i mean even to today as you know we're still trying to figure out what gravity is and define that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we have theories as to far to what it does and hypotheses but very little substantiated data on the fact um mm-hmm. but science nonetheless is trying to give as much truth as truth can be I look at it as it, it has the specific puzzle pieces, you know, you, and how mm-hmm. seeing how they fit together and how they mold together to create the picture when religion and spirituality is just another way to answer the questions that we don't know, right? And we can't use science to answer them, but it's not taking away from the truth of it to say, hey, there's this consciousness, there's spirituality, there's 
an experience is an experience, even if we can't prove it. Mm-hmm. And I suppose so, it's the it's the dual side of the thing. I don't think you can cancel one out, right? Or replace one with the other. That's and that's kind of exactly what I'm saying. Because I'm what I'm saying is, I think that um, the the credence or the belief that we've had kind of instilled. And it's not like, again, I, I like to make sure that people understand that I'm not saying it's a conspiracy or anything like that when I'm talking about these things. All I'm saying is there's a specific way that things that things develop. So when you when you develop a new way of understanding something, it's really tempting to try to see everything through that lens. So you describe everything through this new lens. You know, it's kind of new and it's shiny. So you you describe everything through it. And I think that what happened was we believed that by collecting data points and making hypotheses and using falsifiable tests and all these repeatable, you know, it's repeatable, observable, da, 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 mm-hmm. everything that's supposed to define science, that that could provide the answer to everything. But my, go on. Why can't it? I think that uh, partially it can't because for one specific reason that's really easy to look at is um, our subjectivity. So Mm -hmm. I subjectively experience the world. I subjectively experience myself, my thoughts, um, you know, the external world through my experience, but I cannot ever um, actually a hundred percent know that anybody else is subjectively experiencing things either at all or especially I can't know whether someone is subjectively experiencing something in the same way that I am. So, I mean, that's one of the big things. Like we still don't know um, how animals experience the world. You know what I mean? We don't, there's a lot of research that has been going on. And I know like people like Descartes, um, he thought that animals had absolutely no experience at all. He thought that they were just machines. And so he would, I think it was Descartes, he would do like, you know, horrible tests and stuff and experiments on living animals. And he's like, yeah, it's all right. They're just robots. They're not feeling anything because they don't have a soul. That was his whole deal. And so there's no way that because we can't actually share experiences. I can tell you what I'm feeling, but you have to take it kind of on face value that I'm telling you the truth, that I'm able to accurately report what I'm feeling, that I'm able to put it into words, that it that I feel something in a way that would even make sense to you. Um, So that's one thing where it's like, you can look at the correlations of, um, of, you know, kind of currents running through your neurons, or you can look at the chemicals that are operating in someone's body or the hormones that are being released. But that doesn't actually give you an insight into their subjective experience. It can, you can correlate certain hormones to certain, uh, certain emotions and these kind of things, but you can't feel another person's experience. So that is one thing where we have to take it a hundred percent on faith. And I don't think that there will be any time. Um, I don't think, I don't know, but I don't think there will be any time when I will actually be able to verify scientifically that you are experiencing the world in the same way that I am. That's kind of the 
one of the basic contentions. And well, and one thing I would say, obviously, is that uh, that sort of pattern recognition is still just correlation. So it's still just saying because I can fake a grimace. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I can fake. So if I fake a grimace, then um, my grimace doesn't actually correspond to a feeling in my uh, in my experience. You know what I mean? So um, an AI, for instance, could recognize that grimace as meaning that I'm feeling a certain way, but it doesn't necessarily correspond to the real felt experience that I am going through. So that's my whole thing is that you can, you can build up a database of um, probable correlations. So probably if someone's smiling, it means that they're happy or probably if someone's crying, it means that they're sad, but actors are able to cry. We all fake smiles every single day when we go into work. And that's, so it doesn't necessarily correspond. So um, that's all I'm saying is uh, I think that that's an example um, of where our sort of scientific way of observing things and uh, extracting conclusions from those observations sort of falls short, not in everything, but my point is there are just some things, there are some things that can't be quantified as far as we're aware now. Yeah, and I guess the, the stipulation is, do you think we'll always be limited? Right. Because we're, right. because you, you'd mentioned a lot of the, as kind of the basis of this podcast is the changing of the times, that right now, mm-hmm. Things are changing. And I'm not disputing mm-hmm. this at all. I can't. There's too much data in the fact of that. I can't uh, can't refute that fact. But I, I suppose the argument that we are going to find new ways of doing it instead of science, I don't know. For me, uh, it's not exactly instead of science. It's uh, along with science. Along with so the thing is, right. So um, let's see. What was it? What was it? It's a. Uh, I believe it was Hegel, the philosopher, who said that the way that history or anything progresses is there is a thesis, there's an antithesis, and then there's a synthesis of the two. So there's a proposition, and let's say the proposition uh, in this instance is science has the answers. So that's the proposition, that's the thesis. Mm -hmm. Then there's an antithesis that says... um, no, religion has the answers, or I guess the other way around, if you're going historically. And then, so you, you spend a couple hundred years looking for all the answers in science, because uh, that's, let's say, the antithesis. And then what I'm proposing now is that there needs to be an, a, a synthesis of those understandings, where, yes, science has its realm. And I would say that, like, logic or reason like formal logic, as in like mathematics and and formal reasoning, Mm -hmm. that's sort of like the cognitive side um, of science. So that all happens in your head, you know, mathematics, but we still say that it's real. So I would just say that what we need now is a synthesized understanding of the fact that science has a lot of answers. Uh, Reason has a lot of answers. 
But then there are certain things which it seems like if you take just logic and reason and science, it ends up giving you some pretty skewed um, answers as to what to do. So let's say we want everyone to be healthy and happy in the world. And what does healthy and happy mean? It means that your, your body works the way that it's supposed to work. It looks nice. It operates well. You're able to run. So what should we do? Uh, let's do eugenics so that we can selectively breed people into perfection. And we want them to be happy. And what does happy mean? It means that you have a lot of oxytocin and endorphins. So let's just give people drugs and make them happy. And let's you know, only let the ones breed who are going to create a healthy, happy people. So that's the sort of thing that I think if you take just science and just like logic, you can get to some skewed places if you don't have that third element of the actual experience of the people. Yeah, that's, uh, then you get into some of the specifics though, because in that case yep. you have to define, okay, what is happiness? Right. What is good? What is healthy? Like mental health. Yep. And as you know, right. I have a very, very specific interest in that. That's, defining yeah. what mental health is and actually how we can assist that and what methods yep. are appropriate and actually work to be able to assist that. And we should say like, this is, you have real knowledge in this area. I mean, this is, um, you know, you've, <laughs> you're too <laughs> modest. <laughs> that's yeah, one of my, one of have... my real con, one of my uh, real comments about your last podcast was uh, you made a strong claim that, uh, I was intelligent. I, I think you're going to need <laughs> some data be, to be able to back that one up. But um... <laughs> I think we're getting it right now. That's, <laughs> uh, that's so. Do you? What are your thoughts? Do you think that there are there are ways to sort of scientifically or rationally know uh, what is good? Um, mm. Or because the thing is, if people didn't have experience if people couldn't experience pleasure pain then there wouldn't really be a good or a bad or or else if there was you could just reach it by you know that's what utilitarianism is um it's saying hey uh morality's easy just do whatever makes the most people feel the best and that there's a big problem with that because that inherently always ends up meaning, okay, the most people feeling the best, but what about the least people? You get discrimination, <laughs> you get minority. Like, yeah, I, Precisely. I understand that. I guess that's... So I, and that's the sort of like utilitarianism was trying to just take logic, like just use logic to get to morality. Yeah. And I know a lot of people who still hold that to be the ultimate truth, the mm -hmm. utilitarianism. Although... Yep. I am not a fan of utilitarianism. I think it has a limitation. And I think it I think it mm -hmm. dives into the definitions as well. I think you yep, have, I think we you're right in the fact that we have limits on what we're able to define with science for the moment. Um, for the moment, sure. I think that smarter people than myself who will be able to find a test to be able to be in the future at some point, maybe we will be able to be able to judge right from wrong based on a systematic test. Maybe we'll be able to be able to tell what happiness is based on readings on a chart. And that's an idea, but I do not think we're 
at that point now. I don't think we can have the data enough to measure that now. Um, but the hope is that at some point we will. But the hope is that at some right. point we can work to achieve that, I suppose. And right now we're kind of at a crux at how we do that. And we need, I personally think we need a revolution of hypotheses. And I think that's where mm. philosophy should I honestly be used so much greater to be able to direct the point of what tests should we be trying to, we be trying to develop? Where should we mm. be trying to study? How do we test happiness? How do we judge? Right. It? How do we judge love? I once read a really cool paper about and how that's judged and how we are able to determine what relationships are going to work and which ones are Could you say what the paper was about? I think it cut out. Oh, about, um, about love specifically about how you judge okay. if someone is in a loving relationship or not. Hmm. Yeah. Sorry. And that would be, that would be on a, like by looking at different, um, I don't know, different affects, like, like they, uh, would it be looking at behavior or would that be looking more at how their relationship plays out? Or would it be looking at like, uh, chemicals in their brains or what do you recall? any of the methods a lot of their methods that they have and also sorry my headphones uh cut out so is, oh don't is, worry about it are you still able to hear me well absolutely okay. yeah um the paper itself kind of discussed uh it was a systematic discussion of uh, with a lot of relationship therapists um they had seen mm. however many relationships go through time seen the successes um seen the fallouts and they were kind of judging, okay, when blank, blank, and blank happens, uh, right. successful relationship happens. When this thing stands out, when this one stands out, odds are relationship is going to go kaput kind of thing. Sure. And it's that. So that's, again, patterns. Exactly. Pattern recognition and correlation, which, um, as, you had, as you specified, we are, there's limitations of correlation, and there will be outliers when those methods are used. Um, mm -hmm. and I guess that's kind of where we're at right now. And that's a real big division, I think, on how much we're on correlation yeah. versus how much we should depend on, uh, correlation. Right. And I, that my, my contention is that I, I had this phrase kind of pop into my head the other day where it was, uh, faith is like a portal to the next level. Mm. So what I mean by that is, hello. Got me? Yeah, you're back. You're back. Okay. Okay. Sorry you're about good. that. Um, I think Einstein was walking through a park when he got his revelation um, about relativity, if I remember uh, he correctly. He was watching a train go by from uh, his patent office. That's right. There was something else. Well, maybe I got my, my anecdotes mixed up. But there are a lot of, there are a lot of um, instances in history, in the history of science, where the inventor or the scientist was not actively engaged in thinking about this thing. It's just sort of everything fell together and popped into their head complete in a way. It's very strange because we think that the way that we do science is by just meticulously going over the data and that, you know, cause equals effect. And we can just figure it out if we just think hard enough about all the different specifics. But in actuality, what often happens is you sort of, you go over the data and then the pattern kind of, I, my theory, the pattern kind of forms itself in your mind and eventually kind of 
bubbles up into being a concrete concept. So it, then it just, it feels like a revelation. Of course, I think you had to have all that data in your mind, but once it's there, it kind of naturally, I guess, it naturally forms into a full idea. That's that's just a thought on how this stuff might work. But what I meant by faith is a portal to the next level is I think what you have to do, and this is similar to what you were saying, we need like an explosion of hypotheses. Mm-hmm. Um, a hypothesis is something that you you create because you think it might be how something works. Exactly. It's- and and I think the problem is people are, we've become stagnant because people are afraid of postulating anything too far outside of the norm. They're like, well, it, we don't quite have the data for that. We don't quite. And so it actually makes people kind of afraid to, or maybe not afraid, maybe just like, ah, that won't work. They just dismiss it. Um, and I think that's one of the big problems. So if we have what I'm calling faith, which is just, believing that something that you don't have all the data for might be true. I think that's what is needed. It's this extra, this extra dimension of thought where it's like, I don't, I'm not just relying on what I already know. That's, that's part of the problem. I think. I agree. And I mean, but to some, and to some degree, like everyone, the thing that's not realized is that everyone does that every day. And it's just by convention, what hypotheses we're founded to believe or not. It's everyone believes right. something about what's going to happen when they die. Everyone believes about how they got here, about how everything was made. And so that right. fact, everyone has some hypothesis that they just haven't been able to quote unquote prove yet. And, yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's my point is that, you know, we all believe things on faith every single day. Like we, even though we don't call it that, it's kind of an old-fashioned word nowadays. We don't call it that, but it's sort of like wherever there's no data, you have to have faith. So there's no data from before the Big Bang because that's just physics. That's just how it works. So we have the Big Bang, and then we're like, it just happened. We're not quite sure. Uh, it just happened. Then we take on faith that yeah, okay, we see the results of that. We don't see the causation of it. So we have to kind of wildly speculate. The same thing about consciousness. We don't understand consciousness. We don't understand if we live in a fully material world, we don't understand how matter becomes sentient, how matter is able to experience itself. It's very strange. So we all have faith. None of us can get data from beyond death. So we decide to believe either our experience continues after death or it is subsumed into the universe or whatever, or there's nothing. But, but all of us just decide to believe that. It's not, there isn't any data. Nobody has the privilege of knowing more than another person about what happens after death. And so that's kind of, I guess that's part of my thing is I'm like, I think we have to look, be willing to look beyond what we definitely know. So I think largely we're sort of saying the same thing in relation to that. Yeah, I think we're just, it's just um, dependence on the methods, I suppose. I do other topics right. that I think 
kind of relating to mm-hmm. that and kind of going back into your definition that you were beginning to go into about the experience. So as you were defining mm-hmm. it and some of the claims you were making with regards to that. Um, so yeah. going through your, um, the step-by-step, your step-by-step philosophy of the experience. Um, first, it's the association. And one of the things is the, is the inherent value of experience. That experience yeah. is good in a quick form fashion. Could you re-explain that and revisit that? Yeah. So I think if, if that was what I had said, I think that maybe I, I spoke it a little uh, wrongly. I guess what I, what I meant is, I guess uh, I, I define being, so being with a big B as good. That is good. Being is good. So experience is how we encounter being and um, existence. And I kind of define existence and being and like reality as kind of one and the same. So I kind of, I, I define those. So that's what I'm saying is good. Your experience of those things is mediated by like what's going on. So you can have a bad experience. You can have a good experience. But I guess if I, if I said that experience itself or what you experience is inherently good, I think that that's, that's not well, well, true. I might have I I misconstrued that. But even, though, even, even with that, I have the same, same point, point question. Why is it good mm-hmm. to be? Right. Um, I, it's, it's difficult to describe what I'm what I'm meaning by being, I guess, I guess that I don't mean the being of any individual person. I don't mean my, just my being or just, I mean, everything. I mean, existence in itself is better than non-existence. That is my, that's my contention. So I guess that, I guess that I would say, because it is possible to to experience good because it is impossible or because it is possible to experience pleasure to experience good to experience meaning most importantly and worth and value that means that there is something in being which is inherently valuable inherently good and that the sort of the basis of my whole philosophy is that it is better to be than not to be. So it's a gift that we exist in the first place. And it's very, and if you look at it, it's very strange that we exist. There's no answer to the question of existence that, that is not miraculous. You know, there's no answer. There's no way in which we could exist that wouldn't be, astounding and strange and weird if there's a supernatural deity who created us and created the universe for us that's really weird and really amazing and if we simply popped into existence out of some strange impossible uh minute string of circumstances that's just as weird and just as strange the fact that we're able to experience 
the fact that we're able to uh, think and feel, that's basically just as weird as if there's a deity who created us. I'm not saying that one wouldn't necessarily be better than the other, but I'm saying the answer either way is really weird that we exist. And I think that we are able to experience being and we're able to experience the worth of being. And so I think that being is inherently good. We, there are bad things that can happen. There are things that are not pleasurable, that are painful, but I don't actually think that, that that detracts from the inherent worth because even feeling something bad, even feeling something painful, that implies that there is some better thing that could be happening. That is, there is some better, um, there is a better experience which you would rather have or which could be going on. Because if there was no gradient of good or bad, um, I don't know. I guess I, I'm not sure that I'm really no, getting no, you, across the point think, that I'm I trying to get are. across. I guess the, the, the question is, but you're diving into the heart. What I think the question is, is because the counterpoint to that is, and I think there's viability to this one as well, is that there's a lot of bad that comes with being not mm -hmm. there is good. And I'm not agreeing with that. And I think yes. it's impossible to disagree with, but I guess it's a quantity quality kind of differential of hmm. what makes it if it can be good then there must also be the option that it could be bad that that was the option that there's a huge amount of negatives and i guess is your claim that because there is the possibility of it being good and there being positives while there also be maybe negatives the possibility of the positives therefore makes it inherently good. inherently good um kind of i guess good and bad or pleasure and pain are kind of like surface level ways of talking about it i guess i think that um i think there is value that's what i think there is i think there's value so which is i would say is kind of the same as meaning um so we have people in, for instance, let's take the, the normal example from the 20th century, people in Auschwitz who experienced about as much pain and brutality and evil as, they could as a person can experience. I mean, they were experiencing such depravity that we can't in our normal lives, we can't even really comprehend what that would have been like. And yet there were those among them, Victor Frankl, who wrote the man's search for meaning. Um, within that horror, they were still able to believe in the value, not everybody, but there were people who believed even though, um, all I'm experiencing is evil, it's depravity, pain. There is still some value to standing up and to not giving in and to, and that you couldn't really call, you couldn't call that good. It's not that there's good to that, but there's an inherent dignity that I think 
that dignity is sort of another synonym for that value, that meaning. There's something inherently worthwhile in being that if I can see it, I can see that it's better to fight for that. That I fight for that because existing is better than not existing. I'm not saying death. That's not it. Because even people who, we say that someone who goes to their death with dignity, that is actually a triumph, we say. You know, we see that in our heroes, in uh, William Wallace, for instance. Nobody thinks that William Wallace lost. You know what I mean? We don't say that he lost. He may not have uh, done what he was trying to do. I mean, ultimately, he kind of did, but he, he didn't see it. But we don't call him a loser. We don't call him someone who did wrong because he didn't um, actualize what he was aiming for in the world. We just say, we say that he maintained the dignity. So he, he maintained the worth of what he was doing by not uh, giving up, by saying that even his life was not worth as much as the dignity and the value that he was saying existed mm-hmm. in every person. So that's what I see. That's, I guess that's more of what I was trying to say when I say experience isn't, it's not experience that's inherently good because experience, you, you experience everything. You experience stubbing your toe, you experience uh, pain, you experience all these terrible things. But I guess the leap is to say beyond any specific experience, um, being is okay. worthwhile. And I guess to, but to go along that point, to have value in it, do you need mm-hmm. to conceptualize? Do you need to, need to be aware that there is value to have the value? So I guess the counterexample, I don't, Tolstoy. Mm, yeah, go on. He, for most mm-hmm. of his life, was very devout, very th- philanthropical. Um, varied his life and went to a lot of different areas. But by the end of his life, he made multiple treatises about how all of it was worthless. His philanthropy, mm. his all he had given, all he had done, and his fame and his fortune and his, all his writings lost their meaning, were of lack worse than mm. lackluster. And that was his point of contention that he held up to his death, um, which varied to a lot of his life and a lot of his meaning within his books that enveloped and had a lot of value in the human experience and in the meaning of it. And I guess that question is, but this is also delving to the individual, but that is, I think it's a point that is right. worth talking about of if it doesn't need to be recognized to have value, you need to be certain value right. to have the purpose. Right for it to actually have purpose. I do think that there's some, some kind of um, uh, self-actualizing or I guess self-perpetuating aspect to value. So yeah, I think to, because uh, to take another mm-hmm. classical Russian author, Dostoevsky, I believe it was him who lived for years in a like under a reign of terror of a of a horrible abusive wife, uh, 
And yet he stayed with her because he believed it was the right thing to do. So he believed that there were values beyond um, his experience of pain and suffering. He thought that there, and I mean, I think he probably should have left her, but it's, it is to say his belief in the value of the vow that he had made or his divine duty um, kind of created that value in a sense. So because we're able to look at it and say, wow, I don't know that that was the right decision to suffer all those years in an abusive relationship. But like there's some prime evidence that someone can hold a value or a principle that transcends your sort of moment to moment experience of good or bad. So that's sort of, I mean, again, we take individual instances that can't really be extrapolated uh, to a whole system. But um, I, another of my contentions is that you have to, that goodness, that worth that is in life, you have to open yourself up to it mm. in order to experience it. So I think that we, we actually have a lot of mechanisms in place to hide from that value, to um, lessen that value in our life, which seems weird because like, why would anyone want to do that? The reason I think is, or, or uh, on the other hand, to trick ourselves into thinking that we're experiencing that value you know, we think that that's, that's what we're talking about when we say like there's fleeting pleasures, you know, of earth, these fleeting pleasures, they, they're here now and they're gone. It's not, it's not goodness that doesn't matter. It's fake mm -hmm. goodness that doesn't matter, you know? And so I think we use a lot of things to distract from the real good, to not see the real good, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I would say that the reason is because once you experience that, you can't deny it. It has to be experienced in order to be believed. But also, on the other hand, sometimes it takes a leap of faith saying, I am just going to go and do this thing that I believe is good, even though I haven't experienced it. I'm going to go do it, and then you experience it, and you know that it's true. So there's a weird thing where it's like once you make the move to experience it, you end up experiencing it and that's a self-perpetuating. So I don't know. It's very difficult. It's very difficult. And that's part of what I am wanting to talk about in this podcast, trying to go through like, it, is it there before you decide to go out and have faith and experience it? Is that goodness there or is it manifested by your faith? Yeah. It's it's a hard thing. I don't it know. Is a hard that's thing. that's the uh, idea of a self fulfilling prophecy. If you want to look for it, are you inherent? Find it. Yeah. Right. And and even I would say like, if I do something that I believe is good, um, I don't have to. I don't have to feel pleasure in order to know that it was good. Once I've done it, I know it was good you experience that goodness on a deeper level than just like feeling More of a, happy or a kind of thing feeling pleasure right 
Right. And I think duty can only, that's an interesting point because I think duty can only really come after you've experienced what it is you have a duty to. So you can, you can impose laws on people. That's not a duty to them. That's just a job. Once they've experienced the reason for those laws, mm-hmm. then they can accept it's it like as a duty. duty of staying indoors only when you have realized someone has been infected. It's just virus. As right. Out. Yes. Very then apropos. In the duty instead of the law. Right. Right. Exactly. And that's a very good example. Everyone's going to understand that. That's uh, so again, this is one of those things where I love having conversations because it helps me to see holes or gaps in my philosophy. Um, and also just clarify like where I need to develop it more. But I would say to sort of answer it, and I think we're, we're coming up on an hour, so we got to, I'm not sure if it'll stop recording in like three minutes, but we'll see. Um, I think that it is a fact that you're able to experience value. At least it's a fact for me. And again, my subjective experience is the only experience that I can uh, have access to. And so I know that I have experienced value in the world. um, And I believe that that value is there even if I'm not feeling it at the moment. And so I should act in a way that, uh, that builds up or perpetuates that value, that dignity. Um, and that I would say is the basis of ethics. Because the counterpoint to that is a purpose and the changing of a purpose. The idea that you have a value and you're given value because you're performing a certain purpose. You perform, you're performing a certain duty to society. And when that duty changes or you have a revelation about what the true purpose is, whether it deeply connects with the prior or not, the question is, is, was everything that you were doing still for that purpose? Was it counterintuitive? Or were you all, was it all mm-hmm. just a way to get onto the same path? And you were, it's all just a guessing game to try and find where true north actually is <laughs> <laughs> i hope that's <laughs> hmm that's that's a good point that's uh i think again maybe and this is just a hot take but i think again it might be that you have to sort of play a guessing game and you but then you have to um you have to commit to one of them and committing to one of those guessing games is what faith is and that's saying i'm guessing this is right i'm going to act on it in faith that it's right and then if it is right you'll know you're because you'll you'll experience it. right there um but this was awesome like a, I, dude we could probably talk for like four hours <laughs> and, and not run out of <laughs> quarantine and have a and we could work out the reasoning on and why have it is good or why it's bad and would come out even better after it that's right. <laughs> we will definitely continue this combo oh, I because I think we right. only scratched the surface. Man, this is cool. Uh, I like this. This is like the first, the first conversational episode of this podcast that we've done. And what I want to do with it is like, I want to just, I don't want it necessarily to be like something that tons of people listen to. If they do, then that's fine. But what I'm really trying to do is like have, just cool people who are also thinking 
and we can just record our conversations and and sort of make that into a a new like the agora back in the ancient Greek days where everyone went to this agora just, and they all just talked out their philosophy. That's what I want to do. That's what this. I get it. I get Precisely. It. I get it. Which is, uh, thank you so much for uh, being willing to do this with me, and we're going to continue because there are a lot of notes that you wrote well, thank down you for that we have not addressed notes, yet. Sir, and I thank you for offering up me as a source to help build this up, and I really think this is something worth building <laughs> up and something worth worth putting the time and attention into because it's on things that, like you said, that's beautiful. actually matter in the discussions that help us build something bigger and better. Amen. Amen. Beautiful. This has been uh, the fourth episode of the new illumination podcast with Tristan Einstein. He is a genius as his name implies, and he will be featured on hopefully God willing, many of the future episodes of new illumination. Tristan, thank you so much. I I make it to be on these later episodes, not to date the podcast or all or the times, but I think that's, This historical data point is one worth talking about. Alrighty, guys. Thank you so much for listening to uh, that, this fourth episode. Um, As you can see right near the end there, there was a bit of weird audio um, overlap. I don't know what the deal was, but it's all good. Um, if you guys have any kind of suggestions or anything for topics that I should cover, or you have feedback on this, or, uh, you want to be involved in this whole deal, um, just hit me up either on Instagram at K P G J E R M E, uh, or you can hit me up, uh, no, basically just Instagram. You can do that. Or, uh, the loom the new illumination um, Instagram page. So uh, either of those things, love it, love you all, and I will talk to you later.